and welcome to Stand Tall, my podcast show. I look forward to sharing interviews and talks with and about people that create change, make an incredible difference and walk their talk. Everyone has their story, so stay with me as I hear about the layers of excellence in all walks of life. My next guest is Ed White. Ed has spent a little over 40 years obsessing about running fast. In his heyday, Ed represented Britain as a 200-metre and 400-metre runner, with his most prestigious moment being selected as the first league runner of Britain's 4x400-metre relay team at the 2000 European Championships. Now, some 20 years later, he still applies his craft and competes as a master athlete on the international circuit. Ed, good morning. Straight up, what drives you? Um, what drives me more than anything else is uh, friendship. I like to do things with people that um, I enjoy spending their time with and it's exciting and it's fun and um, I won't tell a word of lie. I'm very competitive, but what I love to do is compete and win with other people so that we can share it together. That seems a little strange considering that athletics is such a solitary uh, pastime. It is. the. I suppose it's, a bit it's like martial arts in a way, isn't it? Well, it is. It's, it's a yin and yang. You know, it's, um, it's funny because um, track athletics in a way is a bit of self-punishment and it is like martial arts. The people who I imagine for the most part get to the top of their field in martial arts um, they have a sense of isolation and they have a sense, certainly in my experience of people in martial arts, they have a sense to start with of something to prove to themselves. And um, it's one of those twists of personalities of athletes. And I'll only talk about sprinters because, you know, throwers and, you know, long distance runners are different beasts. But top sprinters tend to be quite mercurial, quite difficult people within themselves they're quite agitated because at the end of the day that the training is unpleasant and more often than not you end up disappointed with your performance and often the self-dialogue in the head can be a bit negative but every now and again which is why I come back to that friendship all those years you know when I'd done you know big big winter sessions in the freezing cold in England and you get to the summer and you might not perform well you then go and you do one of those international meets and you catch up with your powers and you're in a relay team. And funny enough, then you go, actually, this is what it's all about. It's about the camaraderie. And that kind of allows all of the, let's say, the negative as- aspects to dissipate. One of your specialities was the 400 metres. That's a gruelling race. Why did you choose the 400 over other distances? Well, I tell you, it was it was a misery because really my personality is best suited to the hundred. Um, I'm I'm quite edgy. I'm quite nervy. Um, I'm quite self-absorbed. I'm a bit of a peacock, which is perfect for the hundred meters. And I love the hundred. I wasn't quick enough out of the starting box. I love the two hundred, and I was a good two hundred meter runner. But the answer to the question is that. My coach, Donovan Reed, who made it to the Los Angeles 1984 Olympic final and was actually in the, the lane next door to Carl Lewis in the final, approached me and had a very straight chat. And he said, Eddie, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're not making it. This was in the lead up to 2000 Olympics. 
he says, you're not making it on the plane in the 100. You're not making it on the plane in the 200. He said, we're actually changing tact and you're going to the 400 um, and we're going to try and get you a slot in the relay. And like all good students, I listened to my coach and, um, and I put in 14 months of the most despicable training that I've ever done and fell short, but it was a, it was a heck of a learning curve because that is the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. So you qualified for the 2000 European Championships, but you fell short. I fell short of the Olympics. In Sydney. Yeah, and it, it's, I know we've all got great stories of um, could have, should have. It's like the fisherman talking about the one that got away. And um, the, the pre, and so the Olympic, British Olympic trials win in Birmingham in, let's call it June, July. I went there and I was on seriously good form. I ran a beautiful heat. Um, I ran a very smooth quarter, lovely semi. And then I went to bed and I woke up the next day and my poor 100 and 200 meter legs just couldn't do it. I had nothing left for the final. I was literally just totally leaden. So I, got, I, I think I romped in seventh and, um, and that was all she wrote. I've been sulking ever since. Well, you live and learn and uh, no doubt you've certainly learned from that situation. Well, I think the, I think the, you know, the learning is this. It's funny because you, you understand more than, almost more than anyone else I spend time with, Andy, which is, and I've already used the word isolation, but I'll change it to solitary. And if I look back at those lessons then, I think that I allowed myself to become too solitary in that sport. And I think I moved away from, um, you know, if you move away from the core of something, it really goes like this. What I love is the feeling of movement. You know, when you're in a dojo and you're, you know, you're walking through your carters or you're even creating new carters, which you've done for the syllabus, and you're then taking adaptations from Qigong or different people you met, you're taking inspirations from, it, it can be a conversation. It doesn't have to be from a martial artist. And really at the nucleus of, um, for me, for running, I just, I love that sensation of fluid movement. And that's when we are, and people call it in flow, when we perform on our best, it's when we're able to find that kind of elastic movement. Um, in, the, in the flow. In the flow. And as, as you would know, again, better than most, when someone is forcing an outcome, that flow doesn't exist anymore. And your, your mind is too present. It's, it's, there's a, it's a push that's taking, taking the whole thing over, the whole process over, isn't there? Correct. And you're seeking, it's, you'll see even the pursuit of a medal, as noble as it sounds, um, there's something in it that is not... You know, there's that beautiful moment where the child is running just with glee. And the, the greater your ambition, the further you get away from that flow and that kind of childish glee. Yeah, good point. But this is not something which is a labour of, labor of love yeah. of yours. This has been a passion for over 20 years. In the last yeah. 20 years, you've competed as, as, a, as, a, as a, a master's athlete, athlete in the international circuit. What kind of successes has that brought you? 
Um, I mean, I'll tell you, I think it's been, I'm 47. I reckon it's been a passion for 44 years. And if, if I were to, as we would do amongst the two of us, be honest, I think the success that it's brought me is, is not on the track. And, you know, yes, um, you know, I've got some medals hanging around. I've got some trophies. I've got some beautiful photos over the years. In fact, some pals um, who I went to primary school sent over some photos just this week of a sports day, and it's lovely to get all that stuff. But the thing that it's really been for me, and I'm sure, you know, if people have a passion, they can be a cellist, they can be a violinist, you know, they can be a pianist. I'm only coming up with music because that's something that has durability. I People can do it all of their lives, whereas I think that certainly in, in athletics, people think that it's got a short time span. The thing that it's really bought for me is it's been my place that has allowed me to recenter um, because I I do have that light and dark, yin and yang, slightly polarized personality, which I alluded to that I think many athletes and many sprint athletes do. And there have absolutely been times when I've, you know, fallen well off the righteous path in my life. And the place I've always had to go back to um, is, is athletics. And I've always gone back there throughout the entire of my life. I may have even taken a few years off. But then there's always a day when I pick up my trainers and I go back and I do my training. And that's the thing that, that it's brought me. That's the recentering. That's the success. And, you know, I think I'm just, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to athletics for that. And I'm very lucky to have had it. To maintain your discipline and your drive through some of the injuries you've had is certainly admirable and a huge part of what you do is just putting up with a body which is an all intents and purposes beginning to, beginning to, to sigh that yes. needs relief. So, yes. How do you maintain your focus when you are injured? Um, I mean, it's, that's the, the real, I'll call it bete noir for sportsmen and women. Um, I think what I've had to do, not what I think, what I know that I've had to do is I've had to let go. And when you and I first met, which was nearly 20 years ago, you know, I was, I was still young and, um, you know, let's say I was, I was still within touching distance of being an international standard runner. And then I, you know, I had kids and I gave up a while and I had all those injuries and then I came back in my mid-30s um, but I think I hadn't yet accepted that I was in my mid-30s so I kept picking up injuries because really in my mind I kept pretending that I was going to win the Olympics and when I say pretending I actually still had that desire to win the Olympics um, which was delusional so um, it's a long-winded answer saying the way to get through and beyond the injuries is actually to accept what your limitations or what one's limitations are. And I've now changed my training. I do much less training. I very much train, you know, kinesthetically on feel. And if I don't feel that I've got that flow, 
I don't just grit my teeth and dig in. I back away from it and I do something else. So it's, it's really about adaptation and just accepting, as you say, that the body is degrading um, and you need to come at it from a different, a different angle. They say that uh, one of the, one of the um, uh, kind of things that I like to hear is that with athletes, the, 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 the win or the loss is made in the gym or on the track. Yes. It's not. <laughs> what kind of mental process do you go through in preparation for an event? Because that, that's going to be a huge part of it. The, this is, for me, this is my um, passion in it. Uh, and when I say this is my passion, it's, um, I read somewhere the other day, they said that every moment brings you two opportunities, repeat or evolve. And for the entirety of my um, international career, so let's say in my 20s, I was just through a cycle of repetition, which was lifting big weights, pulling big tires, running up hills, doing loads and loads of reps. And then as the summer comes, yes, you're in the starting blocks. And then the season starts and off you go and give or take, with the exception of one or two seasons, I always kind of came out pretty much the same as I did. I was probably, you know, in, let's say the top 10 in the UK, maybe seven or eight, but, you know, only three or four ever gotten there. And really the thing that I didn't do, and I don't think there's nearly enough focus on it from, from coaches either. I think there's way too much emphasis on the physical. The truth of the matter is that the medals are decided in what I call the call room when they take the eight athletes who've made it through the heats, the quarters and the semis, and they take those athletes and they stick them all together. And, you know, you can kind of smell the adrenaline just dripping. And, you know, there's kind of either eye contact or no eye contact. And you've got that whole scene of different nationalities have a different way of behaving. Some are more outgoing, some are very inward. And, in a way, that's where the medals are decided. You can see people who can somehow summon something deeper within themselves, and then you can see other people whose eyes have just gone glassy, and, and really the fear has set in. So what I do now when I train is I'm always thinking of that call room moment. I'm thinking of what's actually going to happen when I walk out. What's my dialogue going to be when I put the starting blocks down? What am I going to say to myself? Um, and that's one of the major advancements that, that I have made as I've got older and, and still do running, albeit slower than before, but in many ways I'm more successful now than I was before. Let's backtrack for a sec. Let's touch on your schooling. You went to Eton College in the UK, a very well-known yes. prestigious high school throughout the world. Yes. What on earth drove you to choose Eton or was it, or was it chosen for you? you had no choice. Oh, I didn't, I didn't want to go. Oh, it was an embarrassment. The, um, it's an incredible school and, you know, it's, it's had all the, you know, prime minister, in fact, the current prime minister, Boris Johnson, he was there, the previous one, David Cameron, blah, blah. Very prestigious school. I went to uh, South East London, a place in, called Dulwich Prep School um, in South East London. And my father went to Eton, and as so often happens, fathers, sons, and they'd send them down the line. And I remember I turned up to Eton when I was 13, and with my 
southeast London accent, which let's say did not go down at all well with the poshies. Um, and I found the first year really difficult. Um, but of course, then you find your powers in it. But it definitely wasn't my choice. In fact, I, pl- I remember pleading with my father saying, please don't send me to that place. Um, mm-hmm. But he did. And here we are. I think we did all right, give or take. What were some of your, fo- your favorite memories of your time at school? Uh, the best memories at school, we had one of those fire poles and a few of us, the thing was, if you could get down the fire pole, rather rephrase, if you could climb up the fire pole, which was quite a high fire pole, let's say it was a five-meter fire pole, if you could climb up it, you were then part of the gang. And if you couldn't climb up it, uh, you were not part of the gang. And the reason was that when the housemaster, regular as clockwork, used to turn his lights out at 10 to 10, a couple of us boys used to slide down the pole we used to have to scurry across one road and then you get into the fields and then you'd hurry along by, there were the arches over by the railways and you could get up and climb over the railway and then you were in Windsor. And when we were a little bit older, we got over there, there were the pubs, maybe there were some girls over there sometimes. So it was, it was the things that were the greatest thing about school were just that almost coldest thing where boys plotting and scheming, whatever <laughs> mischief they came up to next. And there, there were some beautiful memories. Honestly, we had some fantastic times, and that was it. It was just about good friends, really. Hmm. What about sport? Did you play sport? I did. I was um, I'm the same. So I, I did my running. I did the rugby. I was. I won. What was it? It was the won the private schoolboys championships, which was uh, you know a great accolade. Um, but I mean, here's what here's what I'll say. It's an interesting thing, Andy, about schools because i it doesn't translate um um in australia and i know this sounds like a bit of a weird thing to say and it sounds like it's a sport and say so maybe it is but i was always quite embarrassed when i was i speak with what they call is posh english accent and accents give people away and um in london there are loads of different accents. But let's say you go to what you would call a normal state school, you would have a London accent, you wouldn't have my posh accent. And if anyone were to hear that I went to Eton, their first thing would be like, oh, I get it. As if you belong to the certain clique in the certain box. And it's funny, and I said, I know it sounds like it's me being spoiled, but it was almost one of the things that I most enjoyed about when I arrived in Australia was not having uh, people immediately put me in a box just because they heard my accent or they heard I went to Eton. And I said, I know, I know it sounds odd, but it, um, it was a relief to kind of get away from, from that stigma. And it is stigmatized, and maybe for good reason, because it's got way too much privilege. Um, but I, I didn't want the leg up that it gave me. I wanted to kind of go out and forge my own path. And again, if you think of all those things, which is, you know, the running, you know, let's be honest, in, in, in England, um, uh, being a posh whitey is not someone who's a 100, 200 or 400 meter runner. That's, you know, that's not what you tend to see. So for whatever reason, 
um, within me, and it still exists now. And I don't know why I have to do it because I, I, I can make life more difficult for myself. I never wanted to accept the handout, and um, I'm probably. I'm probably very defensive if there's an accusation when someone goes, oh, you went there, so you had this. And I feel like just saying, no, bugger off. Every single thing I've ever done, I've kind of done for myself against that. I don't know why. I can't give you a good reason as to why that's my personality, but that's just... Um, it's just the way you are. That's just the way I am. Was it at school that laid the foundation for the discipline of international sport or was that something that you felt inside of yourself from a very young age? No, it was inside me from day one. And it's funny because I, um, it was inside me from day one. And it, I've got, you know, I've got these various children. I've got two 17-year-olds. And, and they're all, well, I said all sporty. The younger ones are too young to know. But my two-year-old, who's called Summer, I say to her mom, Tali, I say she's got the eye of the tiger. She's just got that tigerish thing. She wants to jump off the highest thing. She wants to lift the heaviest thing. I just think some people within them, um, it's almost like they just, their furnace burns hotter. And I've, I just always had that desire to excel and not necessarily at, at everything. I, do, I don't need to be good at everything, but that thing that was mine that was running, um, I just, there was no barter. I just, I just had it since day one. So it was built in. Can you learn that, do you think? No, you can't. And the reason why you can't learn it, you can learn to be a very good runner. Look, you know, I know you know the answer to this, but I know you're asking me the question. So as a, a fighter, and they're actually the next level up um, in, in courage. Um, and I do think 400 meter runners and 200 meter runners have to have courage because the training is tough and you've got to, You've got to summon up your will, but it's it's not the same as um, a combat sport. And many, many are they who are very good sparring, and you know the type, and they can do a thousand press ups and all the carters and everything, everything. But you stick them in the ring, and they get clobbered. And the personality does one of two things: either it goes into protection and recoils. Or it just wakes up the beast and woe betide. And I think that is innate. Um, whether or not there are things that occur in people's lives at a very young life that mean that it may trigger that, uh, a psychologist would be better to answer than me. But I believe that for the, for the most part, that people just have that innate desire and that innate drive and that's in their personality. And it just depends what platform they've got in order to express it. We officially met when you entered the North Star Dojo in Balmain, as you say, about 20 years ago. Yes. Has the discipline from the martial arts helped your athletics training or is it the other way around? Or, or can you see them going hand in hand? They're hand in hand. The thing is that it's going it, to sound odd, but when... I go to the dojo and I stop my nonsense, which is making everything about me. Um, the dojo makes me a better person over time because you're there and you have a role 
in order to help or inspire or just be there or be present or whatever it is. You're part of, um, you, you know, a, um, a whole energy in the dojo as opposed to just your own. Um, whereas running, um, sprint athletics, um, makes one too interested in one's own outcomes. And so I think the martial arts really helped me to balance me out. And I still, as you know, I still practice my own version of the martial arts on a, on a daily basis in order to kind of keep that flow. Um, so I, I, I think, I think they're one and the same, but they're intertwined. And I think the martial arts has greater lessons in terms of community than the athletics does. Aside from your running opponents, what would you say have you been your, some of your biggest challenges outside of athletics or outside of martial arts? Well, um, always myself, I would say. Um, um, my, you know, I can err towards having a disquieted personality. If you leave me to, to my own devices, um, I won't end up painting or um, learning how to play the violin, I'll end up, um, you know, looking for mischief. And so my biggest challenge has always been to, um, you know, find a way to counterbalance in a, in a healthy and positive way that side of my personality that's, let's say, wants to, to steer me nearer the darker side, um, which, again, is one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who continue to do certain types of sports will have an element of this personality. Um, and so that's, that, that is my life work, I think, in many ways. And sometimes I pat myself on the back and say, well, then, Ed, you're, you're on track. And other times I go, bloody hell, here he goes again. Um, but I've always been my most formidable um, opponent. What I've, ne I've never beaten him yet. <laughs> I really can relate to what you're saying, Ed. And I'm 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 staying fairly quiet because I don't want to I don't want to kind of get in my story, but your story resonates with me a lot. Yeah. What encouraged you to leave England and come to to Sydney? Um, well, you know, it, it was funny because it was a moment in time, and I realised that sometimes in the undergrowth, things you know, in the back of the mind, things are wearing away. But in my 20s I was doing personal training and, and in London at the time there were not many personal trainers the only place you could find personal trainers were inside gyms and so I thought wouldn't it be a great idea to go out to the parks and um, personal training people outside and I know in Sydney that doesn't seem like a particularly fascinating thing but in a cold miserable climate um, it was a bit new and different and I had a very good business the problem was um, I was mixing being outside all day long um, with then my training. And long, boring story short, I just got completely fatigued and burnt out and kind of um, an ill because I was exposed to the elements. And one day, one of my um, clients, she's a very nice woman, French woman, came to train with me. And I said something that sounds a bit over the top I was freezing and I said do you know 
um, not even cockroaches live in England. And she said, all right, Ed, you need to go for a holiday. And that very same day, there was a friend of mine who lived near Battersea Park, and I used to go and see her sometimes in between training sessions just to warm up. And I got there, and on the sofa was a newspaper open with a Japan Airlines ultra-cheap flight to Sydney, Australia, for something like £480. And I just, I don't know, I just, I think I just picked up the phone and I booked it and I said, I'm going to go for a holiday. Um, and that was 20 years ago. And day two, I knew I was never going to go back. It was literally a moment. It was a moment that happened, a moment of serendipity that probably in the back of my mind I was working on, but I came here with nothing, um, intending on spending a few weeks here. But day two, I was up at Freshwater Beach, and I was like, you are kidding. This is a ridiculous <laughs> life. I'm staying here. I think a lot of people have experienced the same thing here. Totally. I mean, it's important. When, when you think what people have to go, and I don't know if you have had much experience of London, um, but and I've got pals of mine who, who, who they don't see it, but if you're the kind of person that... Um, just needs sunlight and just needs warmth and, you know, does like doing outdoor things. And then you come to Australia and you've got these incredible parks and, you know, forget the beaches. I'm not much of a beach person. It's actually the parks and the ovals that are extraordinary here. Um, and, and certainly back then that was 2001. I mean, it was just absolute heaven. I'd never, I'd never been anywhere like it. I just absolutely loved it. Your life is now turning a new corner as you head into the world of consultancy. Yes. How are you preparing for this new challenge? Well, it is a very good question, Andy. I um, I quit my job the week before last. I won't say too much about that, um, but let's just say there's a moment when you look yourself in the mirror and you go man or mouse. And I'd said mouse too many times and I knew that I could no longer hold myself back. Um, so I, without even having, if you like a B plan or a safety net, I just decided to jump in the river and just um, allow it to flow. So what I'm doing now, because this is literally week two, um, what I have been doing is I have been visiting all those people who over the years I think that I've helped them to build their businesses. And they're great because, as you know, it's a world of reciprocity. And I'm very happy to say that a number of them have already got the feelers out. Um, and just to add, not that I should plug it, but just to add a kind of loop into it. Um, the thing that I'm really doing in this consultancy goes back to what I was saying when you and I were talking about um, the psychology of, you know, winning. When I was talking about being in the call room, you're there and the adrenaline's dripping. Mm. I, I observe exactly the same thing happens when people go in to try and win major pitches and, you know, big bits of business that are really important to them. There's so much noise in people's head. There's such a build-up of plaque. There's just all that nonsense that goes on in offices and everyone's gossiping and the bloody emails coming in and going out. You cannot think. Um, and what ends up happening is no different to a martial artist who's completely distracted. They go in and they get whacked. Or an athlete who's, you know, if he's arguing with his family at home, he can't perform on the track. You see people going in and 
performing very suboptimally. So um, my proposition is is going to be to prepare teams to get ready to walk into that room and be absolutely at the best they possibly can be and increase the chance of them converting success. That's, that's my, um, that's my objective. Well, that sounds terrific. You're certainly the man for that. Ed. I just need some clients. I need the clients. I'll find them. I'll track them down. Word of mouth. If we can help in any way, let, let us know, please. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Just to finish up, Ed, one of the things I, I asked, the same two questions to everyone I interview, uh, what, are, what are your morning rituals, if you have any? Um, do you know what? I get up a little bit early. Not early I, in um, clock time. I mean early when the house wakes up because, as I said, got to get up before the babies. Um, and I do some back exercises. I go down into the living room and I do probably seven or eight minutes of back exercises. And I've now recently thrown in some um, isometric calf raises because of all these Achilles problems I have. Um, and it just it's just my way of connecting with the body first thing in the morning. Great stuff. And what's been your best investment? And that, that doesn't have to be a financial investment. It can be a, a family. It can be... Can be a car, can be a watch, something that you really dig. Well, my best investment, um, and I can only mean this like, to the to the marrow of my bones, has um, been my friendships. You know, as I said, I've good answer. I've I've, I've given you the story of me meandering i i have been extraordinarily blessed with friends who um have been there for me at the times that it was required excellent yeah. answer thank you excellent question and thank you andy and i know that um i want to say something to you and i know you're doing the interview um but um with the journey that you've been through recently and everything you've had to go through on your you know your personal level the reverberation of inspiration is going to go very wide i mean it's i've taken massive inspiration myself in going my god if you think what andy's been through and you know what you continue to do now um it's it's just enormous inspiration to those of us who sometimes fall into lethargy and what you won't know is that you and i sat down two or three weeks ago and we were having a conversation over a coffee um, in Warimbo or Five Dot, wherever it was. And we were chatting about something. Um, and you had said, it's your karma. And I know I mentioned it to you again. It was about something else. But for some reason, that conversation, I sat back in my car and I it almost gave me the permission to do what I wanted to do, which was give up the job. And I know we didn't even talk about that. But something that you said just flipped on a light switch. So while we're on air, I want to thank you for that, even though you don't necessarily know that's what you did. My you pleasure. Gave... And knowing what you've done with yourself job-wise, I couldn't think of a better man that's, not, that's more equipped for you for the path you've chosen. Thanks, Andy.
I really appreciate so it. I wish you all the best with your, with your new venture and if I can help in any way or if anyone out there is listening to this wants to send te- uh, send Ed an email or a, a get in contact with Ed, I'll leave your email address Thanks, Andy. On, on the intro as part of this interview. Thanks. Always a, always a pleasure to spend time with you, Andy. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. All the best. Have a great day. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye.